Well, it may be by car, it may be by bus, it may be by train, but one of these days you're going to be hit by a massive vehicle and your life will end. Your body's splattered over the pavement. And before that happens, you want to subscribe to New Polity Magazine. We are doing our best to pitch this thing. Now, you might argue, and I understand that should you open your eyes into the heavenly kingdom, then anything we could possibly give you as a magazine will already have been attained. But don't be so confident. It might be going to purgatory. And if that's the case, you're surely going to want to have... The information we provide in its pages to get you through that period of purgation. Welcome to New Polity. Will you be taking your copies of the magazine to purgatory? Sometimes reading our magazine is purgatorial, but we hope not with the new uh, <laughs> with the new format, um, which is breezy, breezy paradisial reading. Hey, welcome to New Polity's podcast, Good Cities, where we make the brave claim that cities are good. I'm here with Nathan and Jacob again, and we're very happy to be here because you know what most people have not considered the city as the primary object of our of our salvation narrative we are all moving towards the city the heavenly jerusalem and one of the things that we love to talk about at new polity is of course that the heavenly Jerusalem is not simply this eschatological reality or rather precisely because it is eschatological, we can sacramentally participate in the heavenly Jerusalem. What is forever can be now. And indeed it has to be, that's the imperative of the Catholic church to realize the eschaton in the lives of its believers um, to the extent that grace makes possible. So here we are trying to realize the heavenly city in our cities. And one thing I'll say before we really kick this off is the defining feature of any genuine human enterprise is that it relies for its success on virtue. Mm -hmm. And many of the things we've been discussing so far in this podcast have simply been another way to describe them is the ways in which we've tried to have things rely on something other than virtue. So mm -hmm. to rely entirely on law, to rely entirely on money, to rely entirely on ideological ideas of progress in order to create uh, community or something resembling it. And what we want to suggest, I think, all in common is rather that the city, which truly incarnates the heavenly city, is one where it is necessary that people become virtuous. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, we want to speak a lot about what virtues um, civic life induces, but also what, um, well, I think we want to kick back against some ideas that Virtue isn't really possible in the city. And so with this, hopefully, good introduction, Nathan Bird. Yeah, so I want to start with Aquinas and his commentary on Aristotle's politics and just remind, we talked about this in the first episode, but this quote, that community will be the perfect community, which is ordained to the end that man may have the fullness of life. And this is the city. For it is in the city that man finds the satisfaction of whatever needs human life may have the circumstances in which it is lived. And that's a really bold claim, especially to our ears. If you've been listening to New Polity for a long time, you've been reading and listening to the Darties and, and their idea that we all have a mission to till and to keep that goes back to Genesis. Um, so what does it mean? How do we hold these things in tension and how do we unify them that on the one hand, Genesis tells us we have to till and to keep. And on the other hand, Aquinas is telling us that the city is where we find the fullness of human life. And to do that, we really have to redefine what a city 
is and what it contains. So there is a certain today animosity, I suppose, between people who live in the country and people who live in the city. Uh, the people who live in the city tend to look down on the people who live in the country as backwards, uneducated yokels who just dig in the dirt all day uh, and don't have any particular culture or art. Whereas the people who live in the country look down on the people who live in the city as being wholly dependent on, you know, the liberal state, mm -hmm. uh, as being overly reliant on technology, places of vice and, and so on. And, and this animosity is really tearing apart what is meant to be a unified whole. Mm -hmm. So when, when Aquinas writes about cities, he makes a, a very interesting assumption. So we're pulling from De Regno, which the second part of De Regno, it's much shorter than the first part, but he's just finished this long letter explaining <clears throat> the meaning of kingship and authority. But then the assumption is that that authority and kingship is to be used to found and lead a city. <clears throat> and so he spends the second part of the document talking about what goes into a good city. It's really an urban planning document. Um, it's, it's very interesting to be seen. You know, Aquinas was an urban planner. Uh, it's a weird thing to say. But in this document, second half of De Regno, paragraph 141, he makes an interesting assumption that we'll start to pick apart. So he says, finally, that city enjoys a greater measure of peace whose people are more sparsely assembled together and dwell in smaller proportion within the walls of the town. For when men are crowded together, it is an occasion for quarrels and all the elements of seditious plots are provided. Hence, according to Aristotle's doctrine, it is more profitable to have the people engaged outside the cities for them to dwell constantly within the walls. And that's a really, on its face, seems like it is saying, flee to the country, <laughs> find your farm, never go inside the walls. Or even more scandalously, like he's, a, he's an early adopter of suburbia. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, 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 it yeah. sounds like that. But I want to reframe it a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And note that he says the city enjoys a greater measure of peace when people are sparsely assembled. So implicit in this paragraph is the idea that the people outside the walls are part of the city. Yeah. The city is not this entity that is other from and mm -hmm. divorced from the land. It is the center of a polity. I think it's important when you said we, we need to redefine what a city is. It's not as if us redefining is doing something, what we're about to talk about, but it's more so undoing something. Yes. That being... Uh, that false opposite relationship that we have in modernity and that's been built up since the enlightenment of the city opposed to the country or rather the, the, yeah, the city opposed to the country and vice versa, that this is a false dichotomy that, um, we were able to get a lot of wealth into a lot of people's greedy hands by continuing to perpetuate. Especially the country music stars. <laughs> John Denver's, uh, what is it? City folks riding in black limousines. A lot of folks think that's a mighty keen, but I listen, son, as I tell you what I mean. Thank God I'm a country boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So and one one thing I, I immediately notice is the reason why it's a false dichotomy, and I would say it's a false dichotomy unto the production of the country as a discrete unit. Mm -hmm. So not that, not that like there's no such thing as a city, there's no such thing as a country, but that the city 
has a reality within the tradition, which uh, modernity and breaking with the Christian tradition has then established it um, with the same name, but as something in opposition to the country. So mm-hmm. this is classic stuff. Like, oh my gosh, there's so many um, there's so many examples of of doing this, right? But um, what Aquinas says at the beginning pretty much dictates what he says at the end of the part you just read, namely that if it's um, people seeking the perfect life, then he has described the city notably not by any legal size, not by saying, well, it's a geographical expanse, uh, the police force of which has a monopoly on violence within that area, not by saying it's once your population uh, goes over 20,000 near a city officially, not by charter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not as a award of the state for having um, a certain type of political structure, a city council or something like that. None of these things make a city. And I think probably most people, if they were going to define a city, would pick some aggregate of those things. Well, it's a legal entity. You basically get that somehow from the state at large, and it's because you're big as opposed mm-hmm. to small, and that makes you mm-hmm. silly. But that's all the baloney. That's that's silly stuff. I mean, the the real thing is that common life together in which the perfection of life is being pursued um, – and obviously, this is describing something we do with the land, right? Like, the city is a work of the land. And the very ability for Aquinas to say, well, the city is the people outside the walls and inside the walls is precisely because both are utilizing the land in different ways, but in in one project. Right. It, it is a single polity mm-hmm. that is working towards the common good of all the people within it. And some of those people... Most of those people, the assumption is under Aquinas, most of those people will be working the land directly with their hands Mm -hmm. and getting the fruit of the land to support not just themselves, but the entire polity. It is there that the city finds its material support for for life. Yeah, (laughs) it might be worth dwelling on this because we're commanded to till and and keep Mm -hmm. by God. Um, and so when we see a certain necessity to this, it's obviously because whatever you do in life needs to justify, uh, let me put it even more simply, you have to eat. If you don't eat, you die. Um, and I, and because of this, when you pick a role within society, which is not the procuring of food, then at some level you have to justify this, right? Because (laughs) At some level, people could do without whatever you're doing, whether you're a lawyer or a, or a musician or whatever. Um, but they couldn't do without food. Mm-hmm. So there has to be, there's a level of justification required that says, mm-hmm. look, of course there's an original mandate to till and to keep if this is the means by which humanity maintains itself on right. earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that nothing else is allowed, as if it was like verboten. But it does mean that there's a primacy to it. And mm-hmm. I think Aquinas is already and recognizing it. I think it goes it. hand in hand with the primacy of the family. I mean, the assumption is the family will be working the land and supporting itself, but then also that spills over in yeah. abundance yes. to make other greater things possible. Yes. But it is the pre, it is the necessary condition Correct. to that. Correct. Yeah. I think something that, um, something that's interesting that we've we've talked about in planning a bit before is um, 
that relationship between agriculture and the city, at least in history, or at least some what some people have researched and wondering why, you know, what came first, mm -hmm. farming or the city? And there's various... It's actually com complicated answers. It's, it's complicated. It's, it, there's competing narratives, right? Yeah. One narrative is that... Every 20 we, years, the answer changes. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we prehistory, man discovered farming and was then able to till the earth better. And from that discovery and that excess, it's like, hey, we can now gather together. We can plant these communities. Let's and, oppress some peasants. Yeah. Thus the birth of cities. Yes. Or... But, you go. Yeah, the flip yeah. side of that is people came together for some sort of need outside of agriculture. Uh, the most natural one that I like to point to is, is religious worship. People mm -hmm. come together to worship. And in coming together, realize it's better that we're together for whatever number of reasons, and especially, you know, liturgy itself. Yeah. And out of that, you invent agriculture to support that community. So, like you said, the answer changes every twenty years, or depending on well, who. Yeah, this, this is the difficulty with prehistory, right? Because yeah. the things that remain are the things that would obviously suggest city building, because it's like the evidence of uh, people who are otherwise like hunter gatherers suddenly stopping and doing agriculture is. <laughs> it's difficult to imagine what that would be, but yeah. like you find a mound. Yeah, it's like well that. And let's let's not think. I guess this is it's prehistory, but it's also fallen prehistory. So the intentions might have not been the most noblest. Where it's like it's just the people coming together to worship God, and who were those gods, and what type of sacrifice took place. <laughs> right. There's there's a lot to that, but I think it's important to note that yes, there is um, whether it came before or after farming. There's this need of man and his heart that um, springs out um, from the land. And there's a, there's a need that springs up from the heart of man for for community as well, mm -hmm. and holding those two things together seems, in our day and age, like a very difficult task. It does yeah, because of the ways that our cities are built, uh, it has completely severed this connection that that Aquinas writes about as being implicit. But now we hear that <clears throat> and we get confused. Like, what are you talking about? People living, people being part of the city, but they live outside the walls. How is that possible? But it's a completely restructuring think, how we understand the city. I think a term that we still have that's sort of a remnant of this is the term metropolis mm -hmm. within America. Um, it's a, it's a region, it's a, it's a region and a boundary that's really used for census sake, but we have metropolitan regions. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in the, uh, here we're in the Steubenville or the Weirton Steubenville metropolitan area, but metropolitan is metropolis which gets at the idea of the mother city. It's this unifying entity, unites everyone in a familial way, and even perhaps genders the city, which we can talk about in a, in a moment. But I think um, there is this overarching entity um, or association, which extends beyond just the city, as we think of really the built environment. And then what we would call now in America, townships, towns, unincorporated areas, right, that often more have a more agricultural focus that agriculture today is heavily industrialized and monocropping. So there's tension. Yeah, it does seem that the inverse is tr true, like the, like the exact opposite of what Aquinas 
recommended has been the path of American city building, which is namely that most people live within the walls, which don't exist. <laughs> and we'll talk uh, about that. I, I want to talk part about of the that city. But then, um, and, and very, very few people um, live outside of the walls. Um, and it's... It's fascinating because, you know, within the kind of country city binary, the country person wants to take pride in this because the country then becomes a holder of certain values of being alone, being kind of individualistic, rugged individualism, having the space to kind of live as you will. But what often they don't see is how that is a terribly modern view of agricultural life that is only made possible insofar as the country is not really the country, but is in fact more city. Mm. What I mean by that is it's only through the industrial um, production uh, that cities make possible that we even have the ability to manage farmland at the massive scale mm-hmm. that we do mm-hmm. to be owned by so few people such that agricultural life is basically experienced as being on your own planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's an idea, I mean, it's totally foreign to Catholicism. Like, well, that's for sure. Like yeah. we're, we're all subject by virtue of our baptism to canon law. There, There's no Catholic way to say, I'm on my land, I can do what I want, the government be damned. Yes, yes. Be, because even if there's no state that yeah. is... Over and above us, we're all governed by Holy Mother Church right, at the end absolutely. of the day. And and all by necessity of, of our liturgy called into community. Absolutely. Uh, there's no, um, and, and I've just experienced this with Catholics who have wanted to go back to the land that they often do so with a sort of Catholic libertarian or a, a libertarian tinged version of, of Catholicism where mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm going because the Catholic faith is so important to me and I can't get it within like this kind of twisted, corrupt world. And so I'm going, I'm going to homeschool my kids. It's yeah. going to be... It, and what you often find is if they have one complaint, it's that they spend so much time driving. Mm-hmm. But so you, you can see how like the, the, the life is sort of inimical to... The Catholic life is sort of inimical to this, this um, high capital, capital intensive, industrial style farming, which removes people from, from the land. Or, or rather, it removes people from the city in a way that makes it possible for the first time in history to believe that farming, of all things, is not itself a civic project. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think that's not without historical precedent, even from a Catholic perspective. I mean, we have, particularly in Europe and Britain, in the um, late 18th late 18th century, early 19th century, the back to the land movement, Chesterton, three acres and a cow, um, Father Father McNabb, the church and the land, which had a very good insight into just the terrible conditions of these industrialized cities that were um, abusing workers, abusing children, abusing families um, for the sake of private gain. And so I think there was this healthy response um, within that historical period to flee to the fields. Yeah. And um, I think what we're, what we're discussing here, though, is still a sort of back to the land movement, mm-hmm. but a back to the land isn't back to reality in that this, the city is built on land itself. And as I said, any geotechnical engineer could tell you that. Um, and so that the back to the land we speak of is that of the, the city and the country together as the polis, perhaps a new polis. Do you want to talk about the Greek terms? I'm um, sure I'll, I'll introduce that, but then we can go into the history of how the issue 
is something deeper in America from the beginning of the mm-hmm. way we've laid out land yeah. management. But just with within history, the Greek polis was divided into two smaller terms of smaller areas. The um, and pardon me if I get these mixed up. Check um, note. <laughs> yeah, no, it is the Cora and the Asti. Um, remember right, it's the Asti, which is that area which is what we would consider within the walls. That's where the temple of worship or word temples were, the the courts and other places of culture resided. But then outside of the Asti is the Cora, which is the as Aquinas would talk about, that that area where there's more sparse spread out, villages, hamlets, these people all unify together at the center of the Asti, but the majority of the population being given to the tending of the land. I mean, it's also interesting, the paper that I was reading that introduced these terms would speak about um, pilgrimages going from the Asti out to the Kora to various shrines or places that would be put within the countryside, mm-hmm. um, which would be... In the urban area, also under, making, understanding mm-hmm. their dependency upon the land outside, and it was it was more than just pure natural resource gathering. Right, it was also um, uh, a cultural. There, I think the point we're going to be making is that there are virtues that are that are natural to the farm, mm-hmm. and there are virtues that are natural to the walled city, mm-hmm. and that both of those are good. Um, but they both exist within their proper areas. So, and they're both understood as being part of the polis. Yes, that that unity. And so, I want to talk about the walls real quick before we talk about the um, the history of how America got got to where it is, and maybe how we try and fix that. But maybe I, I think I think this assumption in Aquinas of of the walls is really important. Whether these walls are physical or uh, juridical is really beside the point. I think it, it's helpful to have a physical wall because it's it's a standing testament to to this difference. Um, but people, the assumption is that the wall is either to protect the city from outsiders or to keep people inside the walls, to divide people, etc. But I really think t- to understand, to have the understanding that Aquinas has that the people inside the walls and outside the walls are both part of the same polity, you have to reframe what the wall signifies. It's not a dividing line for the sake of keeping people apart. It is a dividing line so that the people inside the walls and outside the walls might be more fully themselves, Mm -hmm. that the area inside the walls might be more fully urban and might be more fully dedicated to craft, to art, to culture, and that the space outside the walls might be more fully dedicated to tilling and keeping the land. So that the space... The, the dense growth inside the walls does not spill out and take over the farmland. And now all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's pocked with, you know, all of these various kind of mid density, you know, just taken over. And now you don't have any more farmland. You just have sprawl. Um, we were talking before we started recording and, and it came to me that the, the walls of a city are a lot like the altar rail in a church. Everybody in that church, priest, altar server, and laity, they're all moving in the same liturgy towards the same goal, which is the worship of God in the Eucharist. But the altar rail signifies the difference in station and in mode of living between the priest on one side and the laity on the other. We all have the same mission. 
we're all moving in the same direction, but we're doing it in different ways because we have different charisms, you could say, in how we serve God. Mm -hmm. And the wall does something similar for the city where the people inside the wall serve in one way and the people outside the wall serve in another way. And generally in the same way that there's a, a difference in number, there's fewer priests and, and altar servers than there are laity. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same with the city. There's going to be a few craftsmen and, and you know artists inside and, and judges and priests and things of that nature. And then outside the majority, as, as Aquinas says, most people should be outside tilling yeah. and keeping. Yeah, and it, it's like a clear sign of the dependence of the of the one on the other, but then the um, kind of eschatological, um, teleological um, place of of the city. So I mean, what I mean is, the majority of people living outside the walls shows that the tilling and keeping of the earth is mm-hmm. the mandate by which anything else occurs. But its presence around a fundamental center of worship means that all of this tilling and keeping is for something. Mm. And if you're going to point to some kind of obvious perversion, as it were, in in uh, the country-city binary that infects us today, it's that country life is described as having some kind of end in itself, which is, of course, ridiculous. No one grows that much corn just for country people it doesn't make any <laughs> sense, um, but but it's this view of of a a self sufficient existence that only exists in an oppositional relationship to the city, um, and, and similarly, I think in the city it's even more obvious where like you have a bunch of morons who just think that food appears in grocery stores and probably was made in China, and then they, um, you know. Will will die if like the toilet paper supply stops because they have no they they have transformed themselves not into not into like a particular vocation within a polis but like an actual forgetting of the whole. Right. There's no understanding of uh, any kind of relationship between the two. It's it's yeah. just complete divorce. And so it doesn't matter if you get your corn from the farmer down the street or from China. As long as I don't as think it, we get from China. No. I'm just, as long as it shows up on the grocery store shelf at the end of the day. Right, sure. Yeah. Um, so how did we get here in America in particular? Um, is It's interesting. In, America is really the first country at scale to be settled and split apart uh, along kind of an enlightenment map-driven legal yeah. formula. Uh, people came to America and immediately started splitting up the land by drawing lines on maps and putting it wasn't stakes immediate. in the ground. It took time, but particularly the westward expansion. Is it, when it, it, it was particularly bad in the westward expansion, but it's interesting. Um, so Geography of Nowhere spends the first uh, chapter to talking about the immediate settling of America. And there was an early attempt to keep this sort of unified polity in how we settled. Um, so it says here, Massachusetts passed a law, passed a law in 1635 forbidding, forbidding settlers to establish homes more than half a mile from the meeting house. Mm-hmm. But only five years later, the general re, general court repealed the much flouted law. So there's already an understanding that, you know, there's so much land here and there's so little um, tradition in the land mm-hmm. that... <clears throat> there's a certain 
juridical need to keep people close to the center of community, which was the meeting house or the church, essentially. But no one really listened, and so the court just said, you know what, we're not going to do that anymore. There was tradition. We just killed the people who had it. Well, yeah, that's implicit, yeah. (laughs) Well, later on in the 18th century, Thomas Jefferson... um, I mean, it, it, it was changed by the time it became our official, what was called the Land Acts. But um, Will Hoyt, a good friend of New Polity, wrote this wonderful book, The Seven Ranges, um, which describes, among other things, what Elvis has to do with Pentecostalism. But <laughs> in this instance, I just want to read... I'm, trying, I'm hoping that this will be a um, this will be helpful. I might intersperse it a little with commentary because it's quite in the middle of the book and Mr. Hoyt writes like like Bob Dylan. Um, Lay off every county into small districts of five or six miles square called hundreds, Jefferson wrote in Notes on the State of Virginia in 1784. And one year later, upon the passage of the Land Act, that idea became law. Okay, so the first thing that we see is um, uh, Jefferson's vision actually was sort of quite quite good. He was looking for like ways to distribute um, power and through through the distribution of ownership in America. Um, but he was acting out of a sort of Baconian Enlightenment view of nature, where he thought that it was something that was most essentially subject to man's will, which is the only way you can really conceive of saying something like, let's divide something up according to the square. I mean, consider what a square is. It's an ideal object. It has no <laughs> real existence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the, in the beginning of American expansion, we we tried to use the square as... And, and again, there was like good intentions mixed in here because we were trying to make it a certain equality yeah. to it. Um, and we were trying to make it very easy to um, send people to it and, and measure it off themselves yeah. as opposed to having some kind of, I mean, we didn't really have like a, a government that surveyor. could, yeah. right. So anyways, um, then he says, so he calls this a hundred. Um The problem with Jefferson's agrarian vision, and this problem looms now as an almost tragic flaw, was that he tied it to a system of ownership that undercut and ran counter to the very world he was trying to create. One of Jefferson's primary objectives in pushing for section and range logic, so that's this division, he had tried to reduce land sale fraud and to derail absentee ownership. And when Congress went ahead and took up his idea, this was in in the large part realized. However, um, it came at a cost for his vision also made it possible to commodify the land owing to its reliance mm-hmm. on universally applicable and therefore unvarying units of measurement, mm-hmm. standardized parcel shapes and fee simple ownership. Section and range logic was the perfect vehicle for conceiving and then treating land as a commodity. And therefore when the system became law, it introduced into the mind of the farmer, a kind of alienation or abstraction that was not unlike absentee ownership in the way it facilitated a use and discard attitude toward land rather than a custodial one. Now, forgive the long quote, but I'm going to keep reading because this is quite 
helpful to understand where, where we come from here. <laughs> Worse yet, the institution of section and range logic also neatly undercut even the possibility of townships that functioned like Anglo-Saxon hundreds, um, which I'm not going to define, but he says, inasmuch as fee simple ownership was by definition anti-feudal. This distinctly, even dedicatedly anti-feudal character is apparent in two ways. First, this new way of dividing up the land according to a pre-existing Enlightenment-style map involves the replacement of feudal notions of worth with modern, one, with modern ones. When people surveyed land and assessed its worth in feudal times, their units of measurement were label, labor, yield, and quality, not meters or grams. Mm. A land's worth was the number of people, animals, and crops it could support. And you calculated that worth by determining whether it consisted of meadow, wasteland, plowland, if it was open, if it was wooded, whether it produced fence posts, firewood, or masts. In order to make a sale, you, of course, had to use a measuring device that recorded volume or physical weight, but that device was typically altered to account for differences in quality. Mm. Scale weights were adjusted, paces lengthened or shrank, and bushels grew larger or smaller depending on what was being sold. Modern methods of, uh, okay, now, by switching to constant and universally applicable measures like pints and sections, quality wound up being defined strictly on the basis of varying price. Okay, so what's being said here is once we have a sort of universalizing, let's just put the grid on the map so we can sell it in lots that are all equal, the only thing that varied, the only the only thing that was gave the difference as to whether or not one should buy it or not was price. So price and not quality, uh, quantity and not quality, became the kind of governing principle by which we look at land and decide its worth. As a result, it became easier to agree on... Um, uh, okay, and then one more thing. The other distinctly modern aspect to this kind of land ownership is the way it disables feudal notions of obligations relating to land occupancy. Yeah. Just as peasants and nobles both had rights to use a given piece of property, nobody flat out owned land in the modern sense, so too they were both obligated to respect other people's rights in respect to that property. Property, in short, meant fief, or mini-kingdom. By living on it, everyone paid fealty, which is to say, person-on-the-line allegiance to the common good that this fief, in effect, was. Needless to say, this made ownership complicated. It was as though every piece of property had an endless series of conservation or agricultural easements attached to it. This made buying and selling difficult. Um, so basically, by doing away with this... Um, <clears throat> We were able to treat land as a commodity and to take for the first time, really, the idea that land fundamentally serves its owner. So first and foremost, you buy land because it's going to simply profit you. Um, and this is why it became very easy to, to speculate or, or trade land as if it were just a commodity. Okay, so that is our sort of maybe fundamental origin. Maybe it's an original sin. I don't know, but it has a kind of... Um, hmm. Uh, I, I'm not being flippant. I mean, like, since we really did do this historically, it's not like we can simply think our way out mm -hmm. of our view of the land because it's actually yeah. in our codes, in our laws. I like the description, the as, I like the description as an original sin because it is that thing that with as much repentance as we could ever I, muster. I can't repent for Thomas Jefferson. No, no, no. Yeah. No. Are we, yeah. Any more than yeah. Adam. You can't repent. You can't take over the USGS right now and just totally change everything. Yes, US yes. Geological Survey. So. so, so following up on that, I mean, this dovetails almost perfectly 
into what is written here in Geography of Nowhere. He says, speculation became the primary basis for land distribution. (laughs) Indeed, the commercial transfer of property would become the basis of American land use planning, which is to say hardly any planning at all. This degrades the notion that the private individual has a responsibility to the public realm, or to put it another way, that the public realm is a physical manifestation of the common good. Mm. And I think that's something to me that's, that's self-evident, like the, the physical manifestation of the common good. That is our streets, our fields. How do we manage the land in community? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the very beginning of American settlement, we end up with these dispersed homesteads, very little notion of civic space or community, um, which gives rise, as, as we've talked about in a previous episode, to the in, when the automobile is then introduced, it is immediately accepted because it helps bridge those distances that we have created by drawing lines on a map. Uh, and also, I think it helps to explain why in America, cities are often really factory towns. Mm-hmm. We entered into this expansion within this continent with the presumption that if some, if a bunch of people are going to live somewhere, it's, begun, it's going to be a, essentially... A, a, a privately owned space at first uh, that's within the interest of someone to move everyone there <laughs> as opposed to any kind of, obviously there's no, there's no prehistory besides uh, the native American populations. And so in, it, it immediately makes um, towns that start to exist for no other reason than that it's a benefit to the certain, it's a good certain trading area. Live on it. Yeah. Good factor. Uh, now, good, granted we should yeah. say all this like humanity uh, and even Americans are better sometimes than their origins, than their laws. And so it's not to say like, and because of this, everyone just turned out to be a greedy bastard and there's nothing good. It's like, no, like, but yeah. it's simply to say that a lot of our problems begin with the fact that we did not take nature into account, but thought that we could abstractly impose a society on, onto as if a blank slate. I think a great way for us <clears throat> as Catholics to visualize this is to compare the shapes of U.S. diocese to that of pick any European country, just Italy, for example, you'll notice two things. The first is that in the States, and obviously you can account that we're younger, we weren't founded as a, you know, Catholic country, and uh, it was, U.S. was only declared not mission territory a number of decades ago, right? So with even with that being taken, taken into consideration, dioceses in the U.S. are big. And they follow at smallest county borders. And with that, you'll see that um, land management system imposed on that county. So you see straight lines, 90 degree angles. Compare that to Italy. You notice immediately that the dioceses are smaller and all of their boundaries are very wavy or almost scribbly. And that's because they're following real geographic boundaries like rivers, mountains, valleys. These were boundaries that came up when communities had already lived there and started to yes it's much easier to say uh what what land do you own well i own from that creek to that ridge you can see it right there yeah rather than saying well i own from the 45th parallel and 97 degrees to the 46th parallel like what does that mean i don't know the only way you can know is to get somebody to come out and stake it for you and, and hope that they're right Right, and, and this is sort of what Hoyt means when it said it created something equivalent to absentee ownership, even against people's intentions. It wasn't like they were yeah. like, well, I just want to go out there and, and not care. It was like, no, it's hard to care for a square. <laughs> yeah. Now, this this 
the speculation or land land being able to be treated as a commodity yeah. and speculation ensuing on it. Um, it produced these factory towns. It produced towns whose real purpose was, um, for the most part, commerce. And that obviously is always a part of a city, but that became the core of it. But over the over the centuries of America, we see a new dimension happen post-World War II and leading up to it with the car. And that thing is suburbanization. Mm -hmm. Right. You want to talk about that? You want me to talk about it? Well, I want I want to, to note sure. that um, we've described the kind of Catholic ideal here, which is where the tilling and keeping and then the, the civic life are, 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 I shouldn't say civic life, really the urban life, are unified within one project. And how this would have been really obvious and I think pretty apparent to any member of a, a Christian, a pre-modern society, which is that um, you understand yourselves all being bound by specific vocations, but together within a common faith, common pursuit of um, your heavenly homeland. And there's a, a painting that's pretty well known. I've seen many people riff on it in Catholic oh. circles, but the, the Angelus, where it's a couple farmers <coughs> out in the field, right. they're just finished up plowing, and you can see the township in the background, very urban development, fairly dense. I mean, it's all low buildings, but yeah. you see, and the most prominent feature is the <clears throat> town church. Yeah. And you see the farmers bowing their heads to pray the Angelus. Yeah. They're close enough to the town to take part in those liturgies, yeah. big, big and small. You, you see Bells. this in you see this in medieval paintings of stories from the gospels, where it'll be, you know, Jesus, Mary, and everyone else in the more medieval European style. But in the backgrounds of often a farmland they're in, you'll see like the walls of the city. Yeah. You'll see um Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm, that's right. Well, I think the question then is, okay, so we essentially have a phenomenon that is very different, and it goes by the name of sprawl. And I want to point out there's an ambiguity to sprawl, because what is sprawling? On the one hand, you could just say, well, it's the city. So the city is, there's more buildings kind of coming out into the country, and there's this new like middle ground between country and city that we call suburbia. That's also kind of the strip malls as well. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, yeah. Um, but I want to point out that it's not simply um, the city that's sprawling out. It's also that the country is becoming industrialized at the same time. So what I mean is you're having a um, really a divorce where country is becoming more and more isolated and the city is able to take up more and more space as it has less and less of a necessity to be surrounded by food production because now within this industrial system you can grow massive amounts of food by very very few people uh, this creates the ability for the city to say okay well if we can just get this refrigerator frozen shipped in um, and arrive at the grocery stores then we don't you know what I'm saying? There's not a necessity. There's not. A, there's not like a necessary um, proximity to the city that farmland should have. So it's a both a kind of industrialization of the country and of the city, which I think is a very important way. It's not that the country becomes more country, and it's not that the city becomes more city. It's that both become less Catholic, less holistic, because they're both instead 
um, serving the basic goals of industrialism, which is the production of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, there is a spiritual sprawl that precedes what we, <laughs> we might call urban sprawl, which is basically the... The sprawl of the heart. Well, it is. I mean, I mean, and this is, I, I mentioned this earlier, but well, I mean, the, it, it goes back to the, the desires of people to consume without producing, to be dependent on the luxuries and amenities of a city without actually having to be part of the community that builds those goods. Um, That is to say, we talked about this in our episode on cars, but the idea that sprawl is really every man a lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every suburban house with its little fenced-in front yard and private backyard that no one ever gets to see, it's not actually producing anything. It exists as a a unit of consumption Mm -hmm. to say, I live here because I don't want to live in the city where my actual mode of production is. I have a a yearning for the country and the goods of the country and the, the peace and tranquility and the, and maybe even the land, maybe you do have a nice garden in the suburbs it's more and more rare, but, um, you want those things, but you don't want the demands on your time and your effort and your spirit that they require. So you don't want to actually depend for your living from the dirt. Yeah. You don't want to do that. So I'm not going to live in the country, but I also don't want to be part of the real, the culture, real culture and community and the, the very real <clears throat> interpersonal conflict that that can bring with it. You have to navigate to, to really build a culture and, and build a densely populated area. You have to navigate interpersonal relationships. That is also difficult. So I don't want to do either of these things, but I want the goods that they provide. So I will move to this middle space that tries to do both, but ends up destroying both at the same time. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and only through the temporary use of a lot of oil. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's dependent on all these different inputs. So how does sprawl happen now? Uh, I mean, we talked about it a little bit already. It's it's highly dependent on the federal highway system, which opened up a lot of cheap land that people could quickly buy up and develop, uh, build a lot of cheap houses very quickly. And then all those people work in the city, but commute out to the, the country. There was, also, there was also a lot of, there was a lot of federal, um, federal incentives in terms of easy loans to be able to get mm-hmm. if you're a suburban home developer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's easy. It's easier to get finance to build three hundred homes at once than it is to build three homes. Sure. Right. And is this kind of living sustainable for us? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. yes. And um, we have the math. So um, our good friends at Strong Towns have coined a term called the Growth Ponzi Scheme. Um, what this term means is not trying to refer to what we'll be saying as a Ponzi scheme in terms of the malicious intent, but in the way that it is structured. And so this gets into the fun world of city financing and how cities pay for their um, municipal infrastructure, the things that we take for granted, such as roads, um, pipe networks for sanitary, um, stormwater, common amenities. A lot of this, or historically, this has been built off of tax revenue from 
um, most often property tax, real estate and land tax, that the city is then able to take and maintain this public infrastructure. What happened with um, with sprawl and the building of these uh, suburban experiment suburbs on the outskirts of the city and cheap farmland is that the these communities or these developments are built fully uh, fully to the end of their lifespan and that you build 300 homes all at once with um, all of the amenities such as paved roads, water, sewer, uh, electricity, all there. Um, and this is in contrast to how the small bet system of many American cities would form based off of just a main street with some wooden shacks. If the businesses and community does well, they can replace those wooden shacks with some stone and brick buildings. And over time, you have this incremental building up of the urban fabric based off of these successful bets. And the city was also able to make sure that they had only enough infrastructure that they could finance from these successful ventures. Well, with with master or with yeah with master plan, just huge communities where you have everything built to finality, that brings a great tax boom for the city at the beginning of the lifespan of the community. Shiny new homes on the outskirts of town that are all paying property taxes because everyone wants to live there. And they have a dog park. Who who doesn't <laughs> want? I hear they have pickleball courts now. You know. Um, but what happens is twenty five years later. And that's not the nice shiny new development on the on the edge of town anymore. There's probably development that's also grown up around it, um, and that 25 years old now. Um, the houses are starting to look a little rough. The road has potholes. Maybe the water and, line and needs to be I repaired. Think, crucially, um, all of this happens at once. Mm-hmm. So whereas all within the within all a, the houses are built at once exactly. So whereas within a um, city that's built through custom um, from the ground up incrementally, you have a real distributed, you know, points of building and points of success. So it's very unlikely that, you know, your neighbor's roof, you know, needs to be replaced, but that doesn't mean yours need to be replaced. But within within these cities and the average lifetime of a really well done shingle roof is 25 years. Um, well done, to be clear, mm-hmm. and, and the expense of kind of shingles. <laughs> um, that means that 25 years hits and every single roof needs to be replaced all at once. Yeah. Which means the property values of that neighborhood have probably gone down. And it's sudden. Very suddenly. Yeah. All across the board. And now the taxes, the property taxes that were supposed to pay for the maintenance of that road and that sewer system and that water line they need to come from have somewhere dropped. Else. They cannot pay for the road that was just built 25 years ago. Right. And so what has to happen then is the city needs to find another source of tax revenue to offset that. And so what was done for decades still is and, and a lot of states have kind of realized the issues here and put a stop to this particular method of of growth, but for a long long time the way cities fixed this quote unquote was through annexation. They would say, "Well, we don't have enough tax revenue now in this area of town, but if we just grab that next little piece and that next little piece and that next little piece and bring in that tax revenue. We can build new developments there. We can use there. that. We'll build new developments there and get new tax revenue there. And we'll use that money to pay for the failing infrastructure in the old subdivision. And then 25 years later, you repeat the process. Same problem. Yes. It probably becomes compounded. So it's you, growth, <laughs> yes. or, oh, it growth or die. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it said, I, I feel bad because I, I don't 
I'm not, I'm not able to point to the exact study, but I think it's like either 60 or 65%, if not more, of um, all of the infrastructure that's been built in America has been built within the past like 70 years, right? I believe that, yeah. Yeah, and so you can see how this, I mean, the, in some ways this sub suburb is really just the, the, the model, but really any kind of um, infrastructure growth development and hides the fact that you have to pay for it. And something that's important to note is the the form of the suburbs. Um, and we'll be able to talk about this a bit more in the future episodes about the nitty grittiness of city code and how city code shapes how things are built. But the way that a um, edge of town suburb is built, it's built in such a way that there's very low density of buildings. And what that requires is longer networks of utilities. Mm -hmm. So Every if, single family house requires 60 feet of road rather than 20, gotcha. yeah. et cetera. So if you have the, you, you can look at, it depends on, it depends on what type of building style you're, you're going to be doing and what area in the U.S. you are, but you can have somewhere in a more, or a more traditional urban development that has maybe row homes, for example, or a duplex is using less total linear feet of utilities right. than something on the suburb is. And so cities, when cities have to maintain that infrastructure once it's built, the developer will pay for the putting down of the asphalt, the putting down of the sanitary pipes, um, stormwater pipes and inlets at the beginning. But then all of that gets turned over to the city for maintenance. So they get free infrastructure. And for a long time, many cities considered these extensions of public infrastructure as an asset. Because it's <laughs> it's things they didn't have to pay for at the beginning. Now it's kind of like when somebody gives you a house plant. Gotcha. It's like this this is very nice and it it beautifies my home and I thank you for it. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't ask me ahead of time if I'm a plant person and I I like watering the house plant every day or remember to water it mm -hmm. every day, then it quickly becomes dead yeah, <laughs> and, and, and it quickly think, dies. I think it's become implicit and how you can imagine, not just imagine, how you can see how this development pattern has gotten out of control. But farmland then just becomes the next way that a city can basically perpetuate um, <laughs> perpetuate the problem. They can live another 25 years, right? Because our cities, as they're built now, do not have, um, not even that they, they're just not taxing correctly. Yeah. They, they could not tax in a in a human way that would allow um, this development to continue. So it seems like the the you know the sprawl as this sort of um, destruction of any um, healthy boundary between the urban and then uh, the life of Tillian keeping um, seems to be in a big way just motivated by stupidity and fear that we can't stop building um, and and this is of course in some ways, just a microcosm of a uh, industrial capitalistic society generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, as Marx wrote, you know, like eventually um, the, the bourgeois will have to expand to find new markets because the capital intensivity of the machines for mass production are such that you always have a negative impetus to sell more and more like you have to grow. And mm -hmm. so this is why our, you know, empires of late have been commercial empires because we actually have to go 
find new markets to facilitate more growth. And in mm-hmm. some way, that's simply happening on this microcosmic level with our cities mm-hmm. that like we come up against a debt, we can't pay the debt, and so we have to grow in order to kick that can down the road. And yes. so the sprawling <laughs> is essentially an effect of fear. It says, all right, we can't figure out a new way to live, so let's just try this again somewhere else. Let's just try this again somewhere else. Um, it's like a flight from conversion almost. <laughs> it seems very <laughs> poetic. Um, so if that is, if that's, uh, you know, if where we're coming from is the Christian tradition in which we're involved in a unified civic project, and if where we are now is a sort of artificial divorce of people within that civic project into back to the landers or, you know, country and city. And then uh, the suburbs in the middle. And the suburbs as this, as this sort of extension of um, the lack of uh, any any clear vocational purpose to either. Um, and then where do we go? I mean, what do we do? It just seems so all-defining in terms of our terrain that it's yeah, hard to and, imagine. And the options are, are somewhat limited, unfortunately. But a couple of things come to mind. And, and I think this is a, a useful opportunity to unify two guests that you've had on the podcast before. You've had the Darties encouraging people to go find a farm by any means necessary, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really, yeah. go beg, borrow, and steal your yeah. land. Go uh, hunt down your neighbor's grass clippings that yeah. they're not using. On the one hand, yeah, really taking that vocation to the land seriously, and that is uh, a charism that I think most people are probably going to end up being called to if we're going to take this seriously. Like we said at the beginning, most people should live outside the walls of the city. Um but on the other hand, you had Eric Brende on the podcast and he was talking about how one of the best ways to kind of sever the connections that keep us tied to this kind of imperial liberal system is actually to move to a city, like deep in a city, especially in a, in a neighborhood that has maybe been neglected. You can yeah. find a cheap house and you can maybe walk to a church and hopefully, you know, find a farmer's market. You can ride your bike around town rather than drive in. Um, it's really picking one of those vocations and committing to it, I think, is is one opportunity that is open for people who are really going to try and take this seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and something Eric didn't talk about as much as I would have hoped, I think, is if you are going to be taking your vocation to the urban area seriously, you need to really be part of the community. And I'm not saying he wouldn't agree with me. I'm just saying he didn't talk about it as, as much. And I want to really clarify this. You, ha- There is a moral <laughs> obligation to take part in the civic life of that city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot just live there and take advantage of the amenities and, and be happy because you're biking to work or what, whatever. You, you really have to be building up that community through either politics or festival or art, you have to be building the community. Right. Or else what's the point? Like, what's the right. point of, um, <clears throat> merely subs- like living within a, a city if you're precisely treating it as a, as the very sort of commodity, like a purchased commodity that led us to this problem from the very beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and one other thing I'll, I'll point out is I'm not really sure if there's, a specific, this will probably change depending on where you are in different cities will be a little different in this way, but 
I don't know how many modern cities can really be rescued from the state that they're in. Um, Steubenville is certainly a promising one. I think there's enough we, there's enough urban fabric left that it can kind of be turned around and unified and and the land can be brought back into some, the polis. Somewhere in like Steubenville has the benefit of being in Appalachia. Yes. And that um, we don't have the easiness of uh, somewhere much flatter mm-hmm. where you can you just, just keep you can just keep sprawling out right yeah. you have to be very clever in the way that you do development here um and so and also i mean we're economically depressed we we haven't had much new development since the mills closed and the economy bottomed out in the you know 70s um but i you are right and this is the challenge you are right that it is a question of wondering in terms of trying to have a, a right relationship between you know the city and the country today, so many cities have sprawled out. Mm-hmm. And so it's very difficult for someone who has moved or who is considering moving to you know, one of those abandoned, perhaps early uh, ethnic parish communities that now um, has cheap housing and uh, needs some, need some, need some good people to help bring that parish back to life in the surrounding area. They're much farther away than their grandparents were who were at that parish to farmland yep. because sprawl has eaten up so much of it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we have the benefit of, because of the economic depression and the topography of um, Appalachia not having that sprawl, you know, we can have somebody like the Doherty's come be parishioners at our parish at St. Peter's. So at that same parish, you have the people who are tending the country or tending, tilling and keeping the soil, meeting with those who are, you know, in the civic center, um, working together, getting to know one another. And I think this is a, um, this is a unique challenge that these sprawling cities have to, um, follow or have to, have to meet. And there, there is a real opportunity. I think this is something that maybe two, three years ago I would have been more pessimistic about before I started hearing about what the Darties and what they do and how they really shepherd the land and reinvigorate it. Like they put love and care into terrible soil so that it can then be fruitful. Uh, one thing that, that Chuck writes about at Strong Towns is the idea that some of these suburbs are... Some of them can be saved and turned into kind of urban areas, but some of them are just going to crumble. The houses are going to fall down. The roads are going to have to be repaved with gravel rather than asphalt. Mm-hmm. And what that provides is an opportunity for someone like the Darties. If your neighborhood is falling down around you, you could buy that vacant house, <laughs> tear it down and turn it into farmland. Yeah. And, and so what we can see is we can see as the sprawl starts to crumble, we can see people in the cities start to reclaim it as agricultural land. On the flip side, what I would also say is that the people who feel a calling to the land, I think, should understand and, and make peace with the fact that uh, to really have a community in an agricultural area, you are going to end up building something a lot like a city and it, and people might recoil at that a little bit, but at the end of the day, it'll start as uh, a couple of families moving close to one another and sharing a, an agricultural life and community. But as that community grows, 
you may start to have some craftsmen. You may start to have some some light industry or a blacksmith or something along those lines where you actually end up rebuilding a city from the ground up as it was done in, in medieval Europe. Perhaps the term isn't city, but urban. And like you're going to be creating a, you're going to be going from what you'd call a rural settlement to an urban settlement. Right. And, and yeah. creating a new polis that will yes. have both the urban and the rural. And this is something, there's a, a writer I really enjoy, um, Addison Del Mastro, who he's got a substat called the deleted scenes. And he writes at length about the idea that these villages and <clears throat> hamlets and these small agricultural settlements are best understood even, you know, in the future and also in history, they're best understood as cities. They, they might be nascent cities or embryonic cities, but they're, they're cities, they're polities. And, uh, they should be, treated as such they're going to have that complete <clears throat> community right which is i think actually a very hopeful idea because it means that everything that we do is open transcendently broken open towards a kind of total perfection that it that it never reaches what i mean is there's no such thing as like a if a city is that which serves the the sort of perfection of human life, then there's no point unless you have in fact brought heaven onto earth, which I doubt, um, <laughs> that there is not more love to give, right? And I mean that quite literally, like more children to have. Mm -hmm. um, and so more to um, expand, not, not because you're scared and you have to grow to pay a debt, but because uh, people who love each other pursue the perfection of each together. I mean, this is literally what it means to love someone is to desire their good, mm -hmm. right? You look at your wife, you say, I desire good things for you. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, actually desiring good things for your wife means that you're building, like you're building paths, you're building garden beds, you're building, you're, you're putting an a addition on your, on your, the back of your house. Like building is the result of love. We build because we love. And wherever people are together the tendency towards a city is not just some kind of like um sort of like the growth of bacteria in a, in a petri dish it's rather the growth mm. towards a mm. ever greater perfection and, and i and i realize i'm speaking the ideal here like we don't really have a lot of examples of this except mm -hmm. for kind of historical examples but i really think that um it's not some kind of sign of like the deficiency of the village or the hamlet or really anywhere to describe it as a proto city as if like, Oh, if you were a city, you'd be much better <laughs> because even like actual cities are still They're striving towards that. Yeah. The city is never yeah. finished. And the it's moment a we dynamic conceive organism. Of, of a city or a neighborhood or a street or even a single house, the moment we conceive of it as being complete, it starts to fall apart. Right. Which is precisely, I think, that's what so, happens in the spiritual life as well. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So. I think, and part of the the wickedness of the false binary of the country and the city is it does conceive of them, even though they're obviously not, as completed forms of life that have nowhere to go mm -hmm. but but themselves. Which I think is just like practical atheism, right? You kind of <clears throat> you know that you're not in heaven, but you don't really believe in heaven, so you write songs describing the country as heaven or the city as heaven or whatever, and mm -hmm. and this seems to make up for the difference. We're supposed to be be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. And leave your father's house. I have, yeah. I guess, that happens in many different ways. Yeah, I have two. For me, my final words are just two practical points. One to those those who feel called to be in the city, 
or in the urban and those who feel called to be in the rural to those in the urban um i think we've said this in the podcast before in good soil but urban garden um if you have the ability to do such tend the land that you're given because even if you're called to um to be within the place of culture um that most properly the urban environment you are still called to tend the land in some capacity. And well, it's a different type of culture. It's agriculture. It's, it's yeah. still, yeah. And in all likelihood, if you're within an American city, like you turning to urban gardening is probably you restoring farmland. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. actual. No, very. that's yeah. a very good you point. Know, my final word is similar in that I think there is something to do here. Um, it is a pretty disturbing picture to look at the way that cities have basically metastasized their commercial life into the country in an unsustainable manner. And that basically like a ticking clock every 25 years, we're going to come up against huge debts we cannot pay. Yeah. And that the result, you hear politicians talk about this, crumbling infrastructure, we need infrastructure, we need infrastructure. This is just the cry of an empire in decline. Like it's not going to go away. It's Mm -hmm. not like they're going to be like, oh, we know how to fund infrastructure now, even though it's based on a system of taking on debts we can't pay. It's not going to happen. So decline is going to happen, and we live in it. Like this is the gift God has given us, is to live in this age, this declining empire. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful things that you can do is simply recognize it and treat your life more like you would imagine a pioneer than you would imagine like a city dweller or a country dweller. Like you Mm. are in something new because what's old is, is dying away and it's fading. And And so you can actually conceive of your city, not according to the juridical lines, not according to where the sprawl technically finally stops, not according to its population size, but you can ask yourself this question, who, who belongs to the city, Mm. which we define as a people working together for the perfection of life? Where are they? Mm -hmm. This is why it's very important to actually try to live within your parish because Mm -hmm. I would presume or at least hope that within that Eucharistic community, you at least have a initial, it becomes a little bit easier to note, okay, mm-hmm. well, these are the people that are working together for ultimately our salvation. And if I'm, oh, no, I never gave my second not. point. Then Which, absolutely yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> I said I had one for the urban, one for the rural, but it's to that oh, point, okay, cool. urban, urban garden. But to those who feel called to um, homestead, to till and keep, you have a a great power in you to discern where you are to do that and be the life givers of those new cities. And I think that's why I would say I that's between you and God and how you discern where you are to tend the land. But definitely that connection to the parish, you'll start to see the people of whom your excess is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you then have you have the ability to give that life. Um, and I think that's a very special privilege just to be aware of that, that excess is for, for those new polities. Um, and so take to prayer where God might be calling you to do that and think about, you know, the urban areas within your proximity or those parishes that are alive. Um, how can you help, um, or how can, how can your gift be for them? That's my advice. So one thing that we've done here in Steubenville is we started a thing we call the Steubenville Grocery Box. And what it basically is, is a connection between the city and some farms. But Mm -hmm. the kinds of farms that it's connected with are are very interesting. They're farms that are largely 
uh, within great geographical proximity to Steubenville City. They are farms that are small. They are farms that we know the farmers. Yeah. Uh, and often they're actually within the juridical city limits. Um, so they're actually sometimes, some of them are composed mm-hmm. of what was previously more like city use has now been turned to farmland. So some of the stuff has already <coughs> happened. Yeah. You know, Steubenville is in some ways, we wouldn't believe it in advance of the whole society because <laughs> we completely destroyed ourselves through and strip mining and, and various other industrial We are of no guise of what is coming because it already came. And so so the restoration of strip mine land is, is in some way like the proto-restoration of the suburb back to farmland yeah. because it's like, well, you're either going to restore this or there's just nothing you can do with it. Mm-hmm. You can't build on it. You yep. know, you can't grow commercially on it. So you either grow through intensive uh, crop rotation or that land is done. Um, okay. So the point is with the grocery box, um, these farmers um, are able to put what they're growing um, on, a, on a website and it's sort of like Etsy for food is an easier way to describe it because then on the consumer side, you look at the website, you see what the farmers have put on, but then when you buy the food, you're making a direct transaction to the farmer, okay? So the website just sort of facilitates this. Mm. And then on Saturday mornings, all the farmers who have gotten your money and know what you've ordered, they just bring your order to a central uh, meeting point where the the, meet, the thing's already paid for, <laughs> they exchange food. Okay, in itself, I'm not saying this is like some radical thing. I'm sure other people have thought of this. This is hardly novel. But what is fascinating is that you have a kind of city inside a technical city that's actually operating as a real city, like a phoenix coming out of the ashes. Because those farms are surrounding the city in quite mm-hmm. close proximity. Granted, still through automobile use. I'm not saying we've like, you know, nailed the... Uh, the whole task there's, here. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, haven't figured totally that out. Enough. You can't go around modernity. You have to go through it. Go yes. through it. Yes, like the bear hunt. Um, but who are they serving? Well, they're serving largely at this point the um, Catholic community here, and so you have a sort of integrated unity within the town being served by a circle of farmers outside of the town, and they're doing it. Um. In not in ignorance of, but it, kind of ignoring the fact that there's a lot of odd things in between. It's like, uh, and that's what I mean. It's like, okay, is the farm person separated by a gigantic parcel of land that's owned largely by Walmart and Lowe's? Yeah. But the point is, Walmart and Lowe's, they're not part of the city. They're there, but they're there as a kind of occupying force, like what you might expect during during the late stages of empire when it's like there's still Roman outposts, but they don't have a lot of you know, actual power, you're kind of navigating around them a bit. I mean, this is sort of what you come to expect. Like the food exchange happens between people who belong to each other and are trying to move in the same direction, mm-hmm. namely their own salvation. And you navigate the kind of remains of a different enterprise with different goals, which is making money for private interest, largely. It's a difficult time to live because your heart breaks that there's this disintegration and that there are people that are next to you that nevertheless are not part of the city. And obviously the evangelical call within Catholicism would negate any possibility of saying, well, screw those guys, they've got nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah. Instead, it has to be working for the conversion of everyone we meet. You actually have something to invite people into, though, yeah. which is important. Totally. Which is very difficult. Like, And we said this I, in the CAR podcast, um, we're inviting people not just into Christian doctrine, but into Christian life. Mm. And you actually have a life that you we're forming here, just as an example, to bring... Um, to bring our brothers and sisters into more than just an ascent 
ascent of yeah doctrinal terms. We actually oh, have yeah, yeah, yeah. We have food for them to eat. Both yeah, no, spiritual it's, like, and it's literal. like look, man, we can talk about my beliefs absolutely, <clears throat> but it's because I believe that yeah. Christ saved me that I have like some good groceries to offer you, right? It's like you know the old song: "They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love." Yes, um, and and I say it twice <laughs> because. Uh, love is not known in the abstract. I can't, you know, you don't look at someone and just think, I think they're beaming out some good feelings towards me and to others. Mm-hmm. It's in their lives. It's the way they're living. And I think increase, I mean, okay, we're going on a little, I don't want this to be a rant rant, but like, you know. In, It'll just be a rant. Not in a rant, the conversion rant. of the Roman Empire, I mean, you saw something very analogous to this. It wasn't like as the empire crumbled around them, the Christians like, you know, we're just sitting there waiting for Constantine. It was like they were developing what you would call cities within the city. Or maybe at that point we could even safely say cities within something that was no longer a city. Um, And they had unities of love, of trade, of commerce. They had networks. They had, you know, centers where they were meeting. And when you're absolutely right, when people converted, it was not simply like I'm going to assent to their beliefs. It was like I'm going to join them. Yeah. Um, and that's increasingly a more powerful witness whenever the life of the age seems to disappoint as basically the loss of the kind of abundant period of, of American growth seems to be fading. Uh, increasingly, I think the church will become more convincing if Catholics begin to really develop um, civic life mm. amongst themselves. Um, yeah, anyway, so that that's sort of... That's the hope I see, and um, I would also be very happy if anyone if anyone wants to start something similar to the grocery box um, in Steubenville. It's not hard, and we'd be happy to share the the design, website, code, that sort of thing. Cool. Nathan, I think you get the last word. I don't have much more to add. I think we've covered everything. Um, just go out and build good cities. All right. Hey, everyone, thank you so much. Again, please subscribe to New Polity Magazine where some of these ideas are being worked out in dense and painstaking detail. We appreciate your time and send us a message if there's any um, thing happening in your city that you think um, is, is good good and fulfilling some of, some of the commands that seem to come all the way from Aquinas and the scriptures before him. All right. God bless. Goodbye.